0: We're about to take communion, and, and in uh, 1 Corinthians 11, Paul uh, talks about the communion, and he what was passed down to him, what he says about it, he says that as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. And so today as we take communion, I, I, I just feel like that is one of the things that for me, uh, has made communion more meaningful. It's not just bread. It's not just uh, our fellowship with one another. It is a proclamation of the risen King, that He is alive and we are awaiting His coming. And our taking of this is a symbol of our faith in Him and that we are united to Him. And so I want to take a moment and read Jesus' words in Luke chapter. 22. It says, And when, he, when the hour had come, he reclined at the table, and the apostles with him, and he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup, after they had, after they had eaten, saying, This cup is poured out for you in the new covenant in my blood. And so as we take this this morning, um, remember that this is a proclamation of the risen King and our communion with Him. Um, this morning, we are going to be briefly in Hebrews 11. And so you can turn there and um, you might want to keep your thumb in Exodus for a minute, but then we're going to jump back to the passage we just read in Luke 22. So I'm just giving you a little heads up. Uh, We'll be bouncing around a little bit this morning. Um, Today's uh, sermon is going to be over Moses and the Passover. And so let's take a moment and we'll read Hebrews chapter 11, verse 27 through 29. And I just want to pray over this time. By faith, he, Moses, left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing... I'm sorry, uh, let me begin again. I actually backed up one verse. If you didn't notice that, I'm in verse 27. Uh, I don't know if I said 28 or nine. Let me read again. By faith, he left Egypt God, I believe that this morning, as we've gathered here to hear your word and to gaze intently into the revealed word of God, I believe that you want to change our lives. And I believe that you want to transform our hearts. And so we have gathered here this morning that we might hear from you. And God, we ask that you would change us so God, wherever we have come from this week, whether it's from hardships or celebration or with thanksgiving in the season that's coming, or God, whether it's with loss, whether it's with joy, I believe that this morning you have a word for us. And so I just ask that, that today, as we consider the faith of the Israelites and the faith of Moses, in the mighty work that you have been doing, that, God, you would strengthen our faith, that we would have a, a grander, more majestic view of who you are as a result of your working in the world and as a result of, who, of the work that Christ has done. And so, God, we pray over this time and just ask that you, as the King of heaven, would preside over this time and over our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. And we pray this in his name. Amen. The passage we just read in Luke 22, uh, we're going to be in today. And so we'll be bouncing back and forth, not, not between Hebrews today, but between actually Exodus and between Luke 22. So you can kind of keep your thumb in both places today. That might be helpful for you as we're bouncing around. Um, later, we'll come back a little more to Luke. But for now, we're, we're going to take a look at Exodus. Exodus, um, We read from the book, I read from the book of Luke earlier, and um, I don't know uh, what you were thinking to yourself, or if you've ever thought about it, but what did you think of when we are taking communion? What do you normally think of when you take communion, or have you ever even thought about that? Why do we eat bread, and why do we drink from the cup? Well, um... I don't know how many of you in here might have thought all the way back to Moses, but that is the reason that we do that. And so today, I want to take a dive way back in to where this began and what Jesus was talking about. And so um, the passage that we just read was, was the account of Jesus celebrating the Passover feast with his disciples. We're familiar with the Last Supper, and maybe we've heard of the upper room, or um, we, which is where Jesus went with his disciples to eat the Last Supper. But that passage from Luke 22, um, it records a Passover meal, which is a very Jewish tradition. Uh, Jesus was a Jewish Messiah celebrating a Jewish feast with Jewish disciples. And I think oftentimes we read or we, we hear these stories and we forget that um, that they had Jewish names, they had a Jewish culture, they had a Jewish heritage and traditions. And it wasn't just a regular dinner that they were having. It was the Pesach Seder with Yeshua. And the disciples were experiencing the Passover that we just read about with Jesus. And they were celebrating... Having been commanded by God to commemorate the Passover in a meaningful way, and in Luke twenty-two we clearly see glimpses of Jewish traditions um, that they were following as they were celebrating the Passover. Uh, there are things mentioned in the Bible of what we what is to be done for Passover, like we'll see a bit in a bit in Exodus twelve. But there's a traditional way too that Jews have passed down from generations to generations of how they celebrate Passover in accordance with what's commanded in Scriptures. And so the story of the first Passover of, in Exodus gives us the context for the passage we, 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 that we just read today in Luke 22. And it's my hope that that'll give us a richer understanding of, who, of what Jesus was doing at the Last Supper, of who He is, and who we are as a result of what God has done. And so with that, let's dive into... Um, Exodus, which is where we've been. Last week, Colton was talking about uh, Moses and his encounter with the transcendent God, who was also transcendent but imminent. And so in Genesis 15, um, God, we see, uh, I want to back up a bit to Abraham. We see God cuts it, a covenant with Abraham, in which God promises him. Um, possession of a land as an inheritance. He promises an, uh, an offspring as numerous as the stars. But in a vision that God gave him, he spoke of future oppression that, would, that Abraham's descendants would face. And so it says in, in Genesis 15, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners or, tri- or uh, aliens in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there and they'll be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation they serve. And afterward, they shall come out with great possessions. And so this occurred. And in um, Exodus chapter 22, the oppression uh, reached the throne room of God. It reached the ears of God. And God heard their cries. And Exodus 2, 23 uh, through 25, you're welcome to tag along with me as we go through this, uh, says that during those... Hearing their cries, which rose to heaven, God revealed himself to Moses. And we went through that last week, and just to sum it up real quick, God gave him a name that he can't pronounce, basically. So that when the people say, well, who's sending me? Well, you can't even say my name. So I don't know what the essence of that was, but I kind of sum it up as, um, well, he was saying that basically there's not a name that can articulate the essence of who I am. He's self-existent. And as Colton said last week, he's transcendent, which is high and exalted and otherly. And yet he's also imminent and present in the midst of his creation. And so in chapter 3 of Exodus, verse 7, it says that God sees, God hears, and he knows their suffering. And he says, I have come down to deliver them. And that really is the mission that we see happening and the working of God that we're going to read about today. And so God called Moses, he prepared Moses, and he sent him, and in Exodus 3 he calls him and he says, come, I will send you, I will be with you, and Moses comes up with a bunch of excuses, of course we know, and God does prepare him, and it took God 40 years of preparation, and sent him back when he was 80 years old, and did a mighty work through his life. I don't know how many of you are getting close to 80, but I think this was a reminder for me that no matter where you're at, God is not done with you. If God can do a work in Moses' life at 80, and it took him 40 years to get Egypt out of him, for him to be ready to serve him, not in the way that he went and supposed that the Israelites would see that he was their deliverer, but in the way that God would empower him and send him and commission him out. God is not done with you. And no matter what you've done, God can use you. And so we see God calls him, prepares, and sends him, and he tells him in Exodus 4, he says, When you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son, and I say to you, Let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. And at the word, at Pharaoh hearing the word with Moses in his standing, Pharaoh hardens his heart. And uh, Moses returns to reinstate God's demand to let his people go, but we see that Pharaoh stiffens his heart over and over. And God sending one plague after another. Pharaoh hardening his heart. And then we start to see that Pharaoh, through in Exodus, he begins to be more harsh with the people of Israel. Going on beyond just using them for forced labor, he actually takes away the supplies they need and begins to oppress them um, and punish them and uh, treat them cruelly and still demanding the same work be done, but yet without the supplies. And so the, the extent of his oppression on them um, is, is mentioned when it says in Exodus 6-9, Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel. He went to, he went to declare what God had said, that God was, had sent him as a deliverer. And it said, but they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. And if there's anybody in here this morning... That is in a place where you feel like you are having a hard time listening. I hope that what we go through this morning is an encouragement to you. So, God sends nine plagues of judgment onto Egypt. And each time Pharaoh hardening his heart, and actually, it's scriptures say that God hardened his heart and for a purpose, He hardened it so that His miracles. Would be made known, and finally the ninth came, and the le- and the tenth came, and then in Moses, uh, I'm sorry, in Exodus eleven, just before, as uh, as the twelfth, uh, sorry, the tenth plague is getting ready to occur, um, God sends Moses one last time, and he says, and it says, and this is in Exodus eleven, verse three through seven, and if you would turn there with me, or if it's up on the screen, I'm hoping. Oh, good. Exodus eleven three through seven and the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Moreover, the man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt in the sight of Pharaoh and the sight of Pharaoh's servants and in the sight of the people. So Moses says, said, thus says the Lord: About midnight I will go out in the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the handmill. So this gives us the context for the Passover, where God I'm sorry, God commemorates a day that is to be celebrated. And so Israel's I'm sorry, Egypt's judgment was leading to Israel's freedom. And so in Exodus 12, we see that God Institutes the Passover. And so I'm going to read that passage. Exodus 12:1 through 14. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb... Then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons. According to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the fourteenth day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put on it and put on two of the doorposts of the and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire, with the unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted, its head with its legs and its inner parts. And you shall not. And you shall. You shall let not. Uh, you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning, you shall burn. on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you and no plague will befall or destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. This shall be for you a memorial day. You shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. As a statute forever, you shall keep it as a feast. So let me just sum up up real quick what that said. Um, This... Um, it says that this event was actually so significant in God's eyes that he said it's going to be the beginning of the year for you. In other words, it's going to become the new year. And he, he, he says, take a lamb in its first year without blemish in the prime of its life and it's chosen on the 10th day of the month and it's kept on, until the 14th day until it's to be uh, slain. And so it was kept probably around the house tied up, which actually would have been um, pretty, uh, well, it would have probably made the Egyptians mad considering that that, that was one of their deities as well. So it says, uh, God says, take the blood and strike it on the on the doorposts and the lentils of your homes. It's to be eaten in its entirety with belts tight, sandals on your feet, staff in your hand, and ready for a great journey. And the blood shall be to you, be a sign to you. This day shall be a memorial. Keep, keep it as a fast throughout all generations forever and do this. And to this day, it is still kept. And so um, I want to just reference back to the passage we let, read a minute ago in, in Luke 22. Uh, just before Jesus eats the, Lord's, uh, eats the Lord's Supper with the disciples, we read in Luke 22, verse 7, uh, it says, Then came the day of unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and prepare a Passover for us, that we may eat it. Now, um, it mentions the Passover here, but what is the The Day of Unleavened Bread. Well, the Day of Unleavened Bread is the first night of Passover, and Passover begins a seven day holiday called the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And I want to talk for uh, a bit about the Jewish tradition uh, called the Seder, which was the Passover celebration, the tradition that's been handed down through the Jewish communities for generations and generations. It's their way of, of, of obeying the commands of God that are in Exodus to keep the Passover. And so um, the Day of Unleavened Bread, or the, um, it begins the, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which is seven days. And uh, why? Why do they have a Day of Unleavened Bread? Because frequently leaven is used uh, to symbolize sin in Scripture. And leaven will cause the dough to puff up, just as sin puffs us up in our own eyes. And it's their way of saying that... They want to break the cycle of sin in their life. And so that's why Jewish cultures before the Passover, they would purge their house of leaven, and they would move anything with yeast, um, like cakes, breads, cookies, cereals. And in the Jewish culture, sometimes nearly six weeks before Passover, uh, the woman of the house would, would spend uh, six weeks cleaning. And in that culture, the cleaning was considered uh, the woman's task. So sorry, ladies. Ladies. Um, in fact, since, uh, if you'll notice that actually Jesus, what, what verse we just read, Jesus sent John and Peter to go and prepare for the Passover. So you might think that, well, maybe that should be the, uh, man's job, right? So Jesus is saying, well, maybe the, the men should go and clean, right? Uh, well, actually, um, not, not quite because the Jewish uh, rabbis, well, they, they had a, uh, way around this. Even though the man was this, uh, the one who had standing before God when it comes to prayer and ceremonial preparations, um, the rabbis found a way around that so that uh, they would say, they actually had a tradition, and they would say, well, the house is spotless because the woman has spent six weeks cleaning uh, every corner of the house. Well, it's almost spotless. And then um, each year the wife would take a few crumbs, and she would go somewhere and hide them in the house. And they, they could have been anywhere. They could have been in a basement. They could have been behind a refrigerator. They could have been under the cabinet. And so the, the, the husband of the house, the head of the house, would have to go through and find it. But luckily, she was kind enough to hide it in the same place she hid it last year and the year before that. So it's not a long search. And when he finally discovers them, then he takes some rather odd cleaning tools. Um, he takes a wooden spoon, a feather, and a white napkin. And he sweeps up the leaven because he's not allowed to touch the leaven because it represents sin and it's not permitted to touch. And in, in, in some traditions, um, they sweep it up onto the spoon and then they'll wrap it in the napkin and they'll go to a large bonfire outside of the home, which sometimes was at the, the synagogue or the courtyard of the synagogue where the men of the congregation would gather and they would throw their bundles of leaven into a fire. And so that with that done, the house was cleaned, and it was ready for the Passover celebration. They still do this today, by the way. Um, and so there's really some amazing lessons from just that. Um, the leaven represents sin and, and it's cleansed from the dwelling from the dwelling place. Well, we're to be cleansed of sin in the dwelling of our hearts. And He would carry around a light, a candle, in order to illuminate the house, in order to see where the sin was, just as God's Word illuminates sin within our heart. He used a wooden spoon, or uh, the tool was used to remove the leaven, and it was a wooden cross that removed our sin. And the following morning, the last bit was burned outside the home, and that symbolizes the destruction of the leaven, just as Jesus destroyed sin for us who believe in him and freed us from the power of sin. And so um, so now that they had their, their loins girded and their sandals were on their feet and they were ready to go at any moment, um, they celebrated their redemption as not being slaves anymore. And so the head of the household wears a special ceremonial garment, a white garment called a, a kittle. And he wore, it was... It was um, similar to a white priestly robe that would have been worn by Levites and priests in the home. But he wore it in the home, and it represented um, his priestly role before God, over his family. And he put on uh, also another, a hat, not a yarmulke, but it was a different hat. And it was a hat that symbolized, I think it was called a miter, and it symbolizes a crown, which, um, which also is reflective of his... Um, his role is not just the priest, but the king of the household, and this is all a part of the Jesus. Uh, sorry, this is all part of the tradition before and after Jesus came. And so, can you imagine Jesus and his disciples, and Jesus putting on this robe of white and this crown as the king and the priest, and presiding over the disciples? And so, as he guides them through the Passover Seder, and which means, Seder means order, like an order of service. As he guides them um, through it, um, it was called order because of the specific order, and it's recorded in a book called the Haggadah, which means the telling. And why was it called the telling? Because They were commanded to retell this story to their children for generation after generation. It's a memorial to you forever. And so they commemorated it, and they named it The Telling. And Passover begins um, really with the lighting of a candle by the wife. And she lights and says a benediction or a prayer over it, and the rest of the service is held uh, or presided over by the house, um, the head of house or the Father. And during this um, meal, well, actually, it's not a meal. It's a banquet. This is a huge feast uh, because they were to eat the lamb in its entirety. And so I don't know if you can imagine how long it would take to eat an entire lamb, uh, but it's, this is not a normal service. It's a complex ceremony, and it could take up to four hours sometimes. And during the celebration, each adult would drink and refill from their cup four times. And there were four Cups in the Seder service, in the the Pasach Seder. And the first cup is called the cup of sanctification. And Jesus and his disciples um, did this, and we see it in Scripture, actually. Um, the The second cup is the cup of plagues. The third is the cup of redemption, which is actually the focal point of the entire ceremony. And last is the, the fourth cup is the cup of Hallel also, the, which means the cup of praise. And so the first cup of sanctification, and i walk through these really, really briefly. First cup of sanctification, um, the host would, or the head of house would offer a blessing. And he would say, blessed art thou, O Lord God, King of the universe, creator of the fruit of the vine." It's very possible that Jesus was the one saying this. You can you imagine Jesus saying, Blessed art thou, O Lord, O God, King of the universe, creator of the vine. And with that, the ceremony began. And at, at this point, the youngest person, now the children, the children have roles in this ceremony as well, because after all, it is the telling they're commanded to tell of the Passover to their children. And so the youngest person would come forward and they, they asked the meaning of the Passover because they were commanded to tell it. And so by answering these uh, four questions throughout this service, they would be telling the story of their redemption and their, uh, their redemption from Israel and slavery. And so the first question is, why is this night different from all others? Why is it different? So those who would know the answer would respond, this is because of what the Lord did for me. When He brought me out of Egypt, when He redeemed me with a mighty hand and outstretched arms. Because um, they took this very personally. It wasn't something they talked about as happening in the past. They took it personal. And in such a way that the deliverance story was about them. And so... Um, really, the redemption is the heart of the Passover. And I think we ought to take this story in a personal manner as well, because after all, I mean, we need redemption. This didn't happen to us, but the redemptive story is told through this. And so uh, the Passover conveys... Not just the message of redemption, but it also conveys the means of redemption through the sacrifice of the Passover lamb. And so, uh, the, pre- the preparation instructions gave specific um, application for the blood to be put on the doorpost, the lintel, and then the two sides. And then uh, in Exodus 12, we see a, a, a picture of a greater lamb. or Actually, this, it actually shows the picture Uh, It displays the picture of one who is greater than a lamb. It speaks of how his bones, or actually, I'm sorry, the the passage speaks of how the lamb's bones are not to be broken and how the blood is applied to the door in faith. And so we know that we apply the blood of Christ to the doorway of our hearts. And so the the child would ask a a second set of questions and, and and it would ask, uh, why do we eat unleavened bread on this night? And we just had unleavened bread. And so he would, he would say, or those who knew the answer uh, would say, our ancestors in haste let, uh, had to leave Egypt. They had to take the bread with them, and while it was still flat. And at this point, the father takes one of the items on the table, and it's called the, the matzotash, which was like a pouch, and it contained three layers of unleavened bread. And each of the the layers was was separated by a cloth. And yet they were in one single pouch. Or if they were not as wealthy, they would have used napkins. And um, the head of the house, which is the father, would reach in and he would take out the middle layer. And um, as he took out the middle layer, he would recite a blessing and he would break it in half, and the smaller half was taken and put back into the matzotash, and the, the the larger half was given a name. It was called the um, it was called the uh, afikomen, which is not a Hebrew word. It's a Greek word, which means um, that which comes later. Some think it means uh, some think it also also means he will return, and so. It's not eaten now, but it's wrapped in a white cloth and it's hidden or actually buried for later. And so no one knows, uh, no one at the table except for the father knows where the afikoman is hidden. And later during, during a break for the meal, all the children will go about the house looking for it and, and they have to find it before the Passover service can be concluded. And if they can't find it, they don't finish the Passover So, unless you find the bread that was broken, covered in white, and was buried, you don't finish the Passover. So the Afikomen also had to be eaten in some traditions before midnight, which is when the tenth or the the tenth plague came. Um, And so um, at this point, oh, and after after the Afikomen, if it was found then they, uh, they didn't eat or drink anything else after that except for the two remaining cups of wine. And so at this point in the service, the child would ask the last two questions, which I'm not going to go over here, uh, but they have to do with the food at the, on the Seder plate. And so the next cup is, is the cup of plagues. And so following the order of service, they would come to the second cup. And then um, that cup was filled all the way up. And um, it symbolizes, actually, overflowing cups symbolizes the, the joy joy in Jewish tradition. Um, but their joy is not complete. So they would take some drops out of it, and they would take like 10 drops with their pinky finger. And that way they would show that their joy is not complete yet. And so they would also cite uh, with those 10 drops, the 10 plagues upon Egypt. And there was a lesson to be learned in that um, because, because of Pharaoh's refusal to obey God. It brought destruction on his land and his home and death to his family. And so I think, um, you know, when I think about other times when I've ever refused the will of God in my life, when I've told God, no, I'm not going to do that. You know? So I think this is something they would think through. And so after the, um, at the end of the second cup, uh, there is a break for the meal. So during this break, um, they would have their break and at the break, uh, they would come back and they would drink the third cup, but the service can't continue yet because why? Anybody remember? Something's missing. The bread, the afikomen, that which is for later, is still missing. And so um, something was broken, it was buried, and it's got to be brought back. And during the break, all the children went to search for it, and only one child discovers where it's hidden. And it's brought back, and it's brought to the head of household, and then the head of household breaks it again. And each person receives like an olive-sized piece, and it's taken by each. Does that sound familiar? Yeah, it's what we just did. In fact, it's what we just read in Luke 22. Um, It's a Jewish tradition that's been passed on from generation to generation. Jesus was actually using the traditions of the Passover meal to point to Himself. And it's painting a picture of the story of God's redemption and the means of God's redemption. Him. Uh, Even the, the matzah, which is the unleavened bread seems to be symbolic of Jesus. It was was unleavened, which means it symbolized um, a sinless nature. Uh, It was overseen by rabbis from its harvest in the field to the milling and uh, and all the way to the time of baking that it does not touch leaven, and it's utterly pure. And even rabbis had very specific criteria if it was going to be used or suitable for the Passover. It was it had to be perforated or pierced. You could hold it up to a light and you could see the holes in it. And it also had stripes in it. Does that sound familiar? Pierced with stripes. And so if you remember the the which is the pouch too, there were three unleavened bread in the pouch and each separate from one another and one of which is broken. And if you ask a Jew why, the, why they do the afikoman, they don't have any idea. They cannot explain it. Some of them would say, um, there's a lot of discussion and disagreements among rabbis, but some of them would say um, it has to do with the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Some would say it has to do with the um, three divisions of worship in, the, in ancient Israel, which would be um, the priests, the Levites, and uh, the people of Israel. Um, but if you ask well, why is it broken and buried and brought back, they cannot answer that question. They still do this to this day. And so now on Passover, the, the head of house removes the little um, it re, sorry he removes the middle layer of bread, and he makes that layer visible only during Passover. while the other two are still remained hidden from view. If you think of the words of John 1:1, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. God revealed in three persons. And once the African is brought back, there's nothing missing. So now the Passover continues with the third cup, which is the cup of redemption. And before Uh, Moving on, remember what Jesus said. He said, this is my body which is broken for you. And you, and you, and you, and you. And likely breaking the bread of the middle piece, the Afikomen. Do this in remembrance of me. And in Passover, usually the fruit of the vine is red to symbolize, the rabbis would say, the blood of the lambs. But we know that ultimately, it represents the blood of Jesus. There's a fourth cup, and it's the cup of Hallel, which means the cup of praise. And um, if you think of Hallelujah, Hallel is the singular version of hallelujah, and so it's, uh, hallel means praise, whereas hallelujah is kind of like the plural verb, so it's like, praise (laughs) y'all, Texas, um, so, uh, there's actually, and there's actually a fifth cup, which is called the cup of Elijah, and it sits on the table and nobody touches it, and so, um, why is there a fifth cup on there, and, um, it was said in, um, many believe that because it was said in Malachi, that before the Messiah would come, he would prece- be preceded by Elijah the prophet. Um, so before Passover begins, a child would go and they would run to the door and they would leave it wide open. It's in springtime, in April. And it would stay open for the whole feast. And so because they were waiting expectantly for something, um, some believe also that that cup may be uh, the cup spoken about, maybe in Jeremiah twenty five fifteen, where it says, "the Lord, the cup of the Lord's wrath." The, Thus the Lord, the God of Israel, said to me, "Take from my hand this cup of wine of wrath, and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it." But for those who have marked the doorposts of their heart, the entrance of their heart with the blood of the Lamb, they won't receive that because that has been taken from them. And so we have a thousand years of this feast that emphasizes the significance of the moment when John the Baptist sees Jesus coming and he proclaims, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. I think the Passover teaches us that God saves only by substitution. His life or yours, substitution, period. Jesus was God's provision to save us from sin and to set set us free. And now his righteousness is yours too. Which means that that you and I with what Hebrews says is full assurance of faith can enter the presence of the living God. At Passover we see on display God's power to save his people really from himself. With the full force of his wrath, and he saves them to himself. And the power of sin and its ability to place us in the way of God's wrath, that's its power. Sin places you in the way of God's wrath, and it's deserved. And God's honor must be upheld, so there must be a substitution. So God's provision show that His demand for justice has to be met. And in Christ, we have life. And that judgment, the wrath of God has been fully poured out in Christ, and there's no condemnation. There's no judgment, no fear. And it's been paid in full on the cross for those of us who are in Christ, the sacrificial lamb, is not only the lamb, he's the savior and he's the liberator.